Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. As I was thinking about the topic before us this morning, um, I was reminded of a a study that I saw that came out uh, in 2020 that a a combination of Lifeway, if you've heard of that Christian uh, company, an equipping agency, Lifeway Research, and Ligonier Ministries came together and did a, uh, a study called the State of Theology. Where is theology in 2020? What do people believe about God in the year 2020, both in the church and outside the church? This is what they found. They found that 52% of adults in the U.S. that were polled agreed with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. What's even more concerning than that is that one in three adult evangelicals in the United States said the same thing. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So there's a great deal of confusion out there and perhaps maybe even in here about who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What is his goal? Is he still alive? Is he dead in the grave? Was he a myth altogether? Who was he? What we're going to attempt to do this morning is to clarify that question. Who is Jesus? Because here's an example of a way that the work of Jesus can become confused and twisted. There was a, a British Baptist minister named Steve Chalky. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his last name right. He wrote a book in 2003 called The Lost Message of Jesus. Normally, anytime you see a book with some kind of title like that, or like a lost gospel, or the lost message, or the lost whatever, as if somehow Christianity, Orthodox Christianity has veered off and there's something that needs to come back, stay away from those books. They're just typically not going to be helpful, but will only provide more confusion uh, and, and heresy and wrong thinking. He claimed that instead of the Orthodox Christian understanding that Jesus was the Savior of sinners by substituting himself for those he came to save, that was a wrong understanding of what Jesus came to do and who Jesus was. Instead, he said that it would actually be, and this is sort of the quoted thing that gets thrown around a lot, it would be cosmic child abuse if God the Father would subject God the Son to that kind of awful, awful pain for no seeming purpose. The conclusion that he comes to is that instead, the cross is just about God's love to identify with those who are hurting. I agree with that statement, but is that all that it is? I'm saying he comes up short to the fullness of what really happened on the cross. Is he identifying with suffering on the cross for sure? But he is doing something so much more glorious than that. 
And so today's scripture is going to help us answer that question, and it's going to harken back to one of the earliest documents ever written that we reference as a Christian people, and that is the book of Exodus. So let's read. We got one verse this morning. Let's read Hebrews 11, verse 28. By faith, he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would teach us about Jesus this morning. Holy Spirit, you love nothing more than to glorify Jesus. And so in our study today, in our reading today, in our prayer and our singing and our sacrament today, would you be present as we know that you are? And would you be more and more as the spirit of truth enlightening our eyes that we can see you as you actually are, not like we would conceive of you, making you in our own image, but you truly have made us in your image. So settle us more and more into that reality, and would we with boldness be able to draw a deep breath in and say, I believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, if you've never heard the story that sort of goes along with that one little passage, I am going to tell it because um, it's a crazy one. It is a wacky one that we have to understand if we're going to make any sense out of this verse right here. So what did Jesus come to do? Here's the broad scope of what we're trying to do this morning. Two things that Jesus came to do according to this passage and the story that it references in Exodus 12. First, Jesus came to free us from sin. Second, Jesus came to lead us home. What's your favorite traditional meal? Maybe it's Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe it's a, a birthday lunch with a bunch of friends gathered around a nice table downtown Lakeland somewhere. Uh, maybe it's Mother's Day brunch. Right? Our culture and, and every culture has rituals. Every culture has things that help us to mark what is important and what is valuable in our lives. And it's not only that we're putting them there because these things are valuable, but it also works on us the opposite way. That as we put ourselves at another Mother's Day brunch table, it, we're called to remember, oh, my mom's awesome. Or as we sit around the Thanksgiving table and one by one say something that we're grateful for, it calls to mind, oh, I do have so much to be grateful for. Or if you're singing happy birthday to someone that you dearly love, who's turning you know, nine years old one day, then there's something that you're communicating to that person and something that they're receiving even in the act of doing those things. Everybody, every culture has rituals like this. Here is one cultural ritual that has significant meaning to the thing that's right behind me. The Passover Seder is something that still in many Jewish families today is observed. It's even something that some Christians join and, and are a part of and find significant relatability, significant lines of connection between what the Passover Seder was and what 
faith in Christ is. Uh, if, if you were at our mother church prior to planting out uh, three years ago, we had an elder. He's now um, deceased, but his name was Dan Moskowitz. And as you can tell by his last name, he was very Jewish by heritage. And he loved his Jewish heritage. And one of the things that he loved to do is host a Passover Seder every year. And so every year around this time, it always coincides with Easter more or less. And so around this time of year, he would host a Passover Seder. And, <clears throat> excuse me, what he would, he would lay everything out and then there would be sort of a narrative and a story that he would tell about what each of these things are around this table and what kind of significance they have and that they ultimately point to in the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do. These are all taken from Exodus 12 in these three verses that you're about to see above my head. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs, that is a lamb, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So he would read something like that verse, and then in front of this table, he would have set a lamb shank. He would have matzah, unleavened bread. He would have some bitter herbs, and he would have four wine glasses crossing the front of this table. And there would be a table setting for every person to fully experience the reality of what has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then an elaborate feast would commence, and they'd have a ton of fun, and they'd laugh, and they'd joke, but there'd be this massive amount of significance in the middle of what's going on. What exactly is this feast, talked about all the way back in Exodus 12, have anything to do with us in this room today? Well, let's tell the story just a little bit so that we can make sure that we're all on the same page with what Hebrews 11 is pointing back to. At the very end of Genesis, if you've been tracking with us through this series, um, and if not, I'll try to explain it quickly. The end of Genesis, Joseph, one of the sons of Abraham, uh, in the line of Abraham, is brought into Egypt, not in a good way, but in a bad way. He's enslaved, he's dragged into Egypt, and then by God's providence, he is saved. And he is, instead of becoming a slave and maybe dying in squalor there, he actually becomes next to the right-hand man next to Pharaoh. And then a famine comes. You may remember that. There's a, a whole uh, famine in all the surrounding area, and they need help, including Joseph's extended family. Joseph's extended family comes and asks for help, and through a miraculous set of circumstances, their relationship is restored in, which, in a, a way that it was very broken. They are all invited to live in Egypt. And that little clan of people, that little clan of brothers and their dad, Jacob, go and live in Egypt. And it says in the very end of Genesis, in the very beginning of Exodus, that they grew. And then they grew some more. And then they grew some more, and God blessed them and multiplied them. There's this, this throwback to the, the language of Genesis 1, of what we were made to do and be, that we would flourish, that we would increase, that we would grow, that God's blessing them, and that's what's happening. 
one of Joseph's brothers had the name Levi. I happen to like that name. Uh, And he had a large family. One of Levi's descendants is Moses. So Moses is an Israelite. Moses is a son of Abraham. Moses is in the chosen line of those who God was placing his favor on. And again, through another miraculous set of circumstances that was described by uh, Brown Peterson very well last week up here, uh, Israel begins to be mistreated and enslaved and oppressed. But at the very same time, Moses is adopted as grandson to the king or to the pharaoh and is raising more and more in wisdom and stature and knowledge. But he always knows whose he is. He always knows that he first is an Israelite. He is raised up by God for this really unique time and this unique purpose. And again, uh, you may be familiar with some part of this story, but just to help you fill in all the gaps, Moses is called for a very particular purpose. And that particular purpose is God says, it is not good that my people are oppressed. It is not good that my people are mistreated. It's time to go. We're going to get up and we're going to go. So Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to say, Pharaoh, thanks for your hospitality. It's been great. But God just said, we got to go. It's been a long thing. He did the same thing to Abraham. Now he's doing it to us. We got to get up and we got to go. So we'll see you later. What's Pharaoh's response? Mm-mm. No, you won't. You're too valuable. There's too many of you. So much of their economy was built on the slave labor that they gave. Their economy may would collapse without them. No, you can't go anywhere. And so one by one, ten plagues, each one increasing in severity more than the previous one, begin to come upon all of Egypt. You can go back and read in the early chapters of Exodus about that. The tenth plague is the worst of all. The tenth plague is the final one. Because plagues one through nine, Pharaoh softens for a little bit, and then Moses approaches him and says, do you get the picture? Can we go now? And then he goes, nope, still can't. And so this happens time after time after time, and then finally it escalates to the point of something that seems extremely severe. It was decreed by God that the firstborn in every household, even livestock, the firstborn of every household in one night would die. Now, you can imagine the type of stir that would cause among the Israelites. He did not tell this information. God did not tell this information to the Egyptians. He told it to his chosen people, the Israelites as a final way to break Pharaoh to the point where he would open his hands and say, fine. And so I think something before we go any further that we need to address is is there's an elephant in the room that I just talked about. Why would God kill babies? Like, that seems unfair, that seems unloving, that seems like the furthest, furthest thing that we would understand as we just said the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. How does the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever and him killing a bunch of babies make sense? How do those things go together? 
you have to understand the context of what's going on here. Because if you remember back to the reason that Moses had to be at three months old, he had to be hidden, he had to be put in a basket, he had to be sailed down the Nile in order that maybe somebody would save him because he was sentenced to die. One of Pharaoh's decrees and the ways that he was trying to suppress the people who were continuing to grow is he said, every infant son shall die. And so in the very same way that they had the, the Egyptians had been the perpetrators of killing babies that were not theirs. Now they were feeling some of the pain back on themselves. So this is not arbitrary. This is not out of nowhere. This is a very unique context, a unique situation, and it illustrates an even broader point. Because this is not a surprise. Genesis 9-6, this is before all this happens. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And so there is a tit for tat. There is a, a, a just deserts for what a person does in God's economy. But here's the other thing. The Egyptians weren't the only murderers in town. If you remember the story, Moses was also a murderer. He had done something just as evil now, a bit of a different story and context, but murder is murder. And so he had done something just as evil as what the Egyptians had done. He had killed an Egyptian. And in the very same way, that should have come back on his head. Here's the bigger point and how this comes into our living rooms and into our hearts today. Our sin, which was just described what sin is, breaking the law of God comes back on our own heads by its very nature. Right? Uh, have you lied? You should be lied to. Have you cheated? You should be cheated on. Have you stolen? You should be stolen from. Uh, there is a reaping what you sow in the economy of God. Because he is not only love, yes, he is love, but understand that true love hates injustice. True love hates wrongdoing. And so if God is truly love, then when he sees people who are being unjustly treated, it would be wrong for him to say, oh, well, I'm just love, so I'm just going to go over here and just hope everything you guys can kind of, you know, hug and make up. No, he is ferocious in his love. He is jealous in his love. He takes care of his people. And almost every religion gets this one right. All, you know, you can, you can point to karma. You can point to the, the idea in Islam of by being good enough, you can please God. Almost every religion gets this one right, that there is a uniqueness, though, to the Christian conception and the understanding of this reaping what you sow. Christianity is the only religion that offers a substitute. It, it is the only religion that does not negate that you get what you pay for. But it also says that someone else can pay for what you should get. Let me explain. All the way back here in Exodus 12, what's going on? You, God, you want me to get a lamb and you want me to place my hand on its head 
and then you want me to slit its throat, and then you want me to take its blood, and then you want me to cover a door, and then you want me to not go outside. What? Now you can begin to understand where Hebrews 11 should ring in our ears. By faith, Moses did that. Because how in the world could he have understood what exactly is going on right now? Who? I mean, what a wacky thing to do. And yet, even in the confusion of it, even in just how gross and awful that whole experience must have been, he did it. And in a fragment, in a, in a shadow, in small part, what was going on there is pointing to what happened there. Get a lamb, put your hand on its head, slit its throat, take its blood, cover your door, and then don't go anywhere. Because in one sense, this angel of death that comes over, the destroyer, as Hebrews 11 calls it, looms heavy over each of us. Right? Death is coming for each of us. And part of the job of the church, part of, of my job as a pastor, is to, to help prepare you for whatever that day is. And so the question to you today is, are you prepared for that day? Have you come to a place where you can say, I know what will happen on that day because I have a substitute. I know my sin has found me out. I know what I have done wrong should come back on my own head. And I know that instead I have stepped to the side and I have said, Jesus, take that pain, that suffering, and that wrath instead of me. Uh, we were at a wedding this past weekend, and, uh, and that's why I wasn't with you, but uh, we had a lot of fun. And one of the fun things about it is, you know, they, they played that Isley Brothers song, Shout. And, you know, it starts with a little bit softer now, a little bit softer now. And then it goes the opposite way, a little bit louder now, a little bit louder now, a little bit louder now. What began as a whisper way back in Exodus 12 is now shouting to us in the New Testament. It is now shouting to us in places like John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, shouting at us what may have been unclear and murky back there in Exodus 12, now is in technicolor in the New Testament. Jesus' death on the cross is what the Passover was all about. Jesus came to free us from our sin by becoming sin for us. Okay, secondly, uh, Jesus came not only to free us from our sin and take the penalty of it, but also to lead us home. The, the thing that I love about what's happening here in Exodus 12 is that it not only says, have a feast, it says, keep the feast. I want you to do this every year. I, I'm going to give you a month. I'm going to give you a day. I'm going to give you a moon. I'm going to give you a regular cycle by which every year you are going to rehearse this. And in the very same way that, Lord willing, every time someone is come, comes up here to be baptized, we rehearse again our own. So there is this rehearsal, this, this liturgy that our own selves go through every time that we partake in each of these sacraments that we get to do today. Um, there were four wine glasses, like I mentioned, in the Passover Seder. They 
corresponded to four promises out of Exodus 6. You'll see it above me. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out, there's the first promise, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. So both the first and the second cup had to do with the promises of bringing you out and delivering you. And so again, there is a movement to what Jesus did on the cross. Not only is our sin paid for, but it also now propels us outward to live in a completely different way. Now here's the catch. What happened right after the exodus from Egypt? Was it like right into the promised land, party time, everything's awesome? No. No, what happens? Wilderness. Death. Struggle. Hardship. That's not what they thought they were signing up for. They thought it was going to be A to B, and it went A to Z to B. They got to B eventually, but it took a crooked path to get there. How about our lives? How about the crooked paths that God is weaving and calling each of us on? We want it to be A to B. We, we got the promise of what God's going to do. He's, not, he's never going to leave us or forsake us. He's got a promise and a hope and a future, and we just want that all right now. I want the money. I want the, I want the great job. I want the awesome family. I want whatever I want right now when I want it. But that is not how God works. Thankfully, it's not how God works because he knows better what we need than even we do. When life gets hard like that, sin gets easy, right? Trial can both produce faith, hope, love. It can also produce a bunch of grossness. And so there may be something that you're going through today, a trial that you're going through, and what you're realizing that it's bringing out of you is not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Instead, it's the opposite of each one of those things. Take every one of those and flip it, and that's more what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 5 says it this way, and we already read this, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but just reference it. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us celebrate the festival. So then, what is, this is New Testament. So this is now speaking to Christians. What does it mean in a way that the Exodus 12 said, keep the feast, keep the festival? How do we do that? It says, here's how you do that. You not only do the ritual things that we're about to do, but you no longer live with the old leaven. Leaven is, is often talked about as sin in the Old and New Testament. Unleaven yourself, Right? You're free from that life. Don't go back to it when life gets hard. You're free from grasping on money and power and, and your own control and wisdom and knowledge. You're free from having to grasp onto those things because you have God's instead. Don't go back. Don't go back to the old ways because the new way is so much better. Leave the leaven of malice and evil behind and instead go to the unleavened bread. Live the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But here's the other truth, and then we'll close. A little leaven, like it says, leavens the whole lump. A, a little bit of sin 
can make a lot of bit of hurt. Uh, if you've seen, there's a, a video that rolls through um, the Sports Center Instagram every once in a while that's fun to chuckle at. It's a guy, and he's, he's trying to get a golf bag down, and there's a top row of golf bags in this golf shop, and he's just trying to get this one down, and as he pulls it, 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 instead of coming down, it knocks it to the side, it falls sideways, and then it hits the next golf bag, and the next one, and the next one, and then there's this domino effect brrr, all the way around the golf shop, and they all fall down in the middle of the golf shop, right? Something that was very small turned into something very big. A little leaven can leaven the whole lump. A little lie can lead to a heap of problems. A little compromise can destroy your family. A few too many, one night, and your, night, your life can never be the same. Right? We know these things. We know these cautionary tales. We see them on the news. We may even be experiencing some of those. And so how do we fight against that? Keep the feast. Be reminded that one day we have a promised land that we are headed towards, a new heaven and a new earth, no crying, no tears, no pain. That day is not today. So what do we do on this day? We journey on. We journey on towards the promised land by keeping the feast, by being reminded that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, did you know that that night before Jesus was betrayed was the first night of Passover? Have you noticed or seen that connection all the way from Exodus 12 to Matthew 26 and those two things coming together so beautifully that only the Lord could have made that happen? By faith, we keep this Passover. By faith, we keep this meal. And so as you come to the table this morning as we close, do you have this faith? Has this faith that we've proclaimed all day today through every moment of our service, is this your faith? That Jesus came to both free you from sin and to lead you to a home that you could not get to yourself, is this your faith? Secondly, are you connected to a band of freed people who are on their way home, who are helping each other more and more day after day to keep the feast, to remember Christ, to remember that you're free. Don't go back to the old ways. Live in the new. And finally, are you reconciled? Not perfectly, but in the way that we have been reconciled to God, we have a new power to reconcile with one another especially those of us in the faith. Are you reconciled at least to the point where if someone came to you and said, hey, I'm sorry, I really blew it, that you would not hold such bitterness towards them that you would say, I can't do that? Because that indicates there's something about the work done on the cross that has not fully made its way into your heart. But if those three things are true, this table, this table, that table, back middle, is your feast. Let's keep it. So on the night in which he was betrayed, he took unleavened bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you, unleavened, sinless, perfect for you. As often as you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And after supper, get this. Four cups in the front, 
first two are about leaving. What's the third one about? You remember? Cup of redemption. So he takes that third cup, which customarily happens after dinner, and he says, you know that cup of redemption that Exodus 6 was talking about? Let's clink a glass, because that cup of redemption is fulfilled right now. In this moment, you are hearing it fulfilled. And so let's keep this feast together as often as we do this, being reminded of the great work of Jesus for us, okay? So the way that we're going to do this is in a moment after I pray, you can come up and receive one of these little cups. I'll give you a moment once you get back to your seat to open them. You open, get the top wafer by peeling off the top layer, and then there's a secondary layer that'll get you into the juice. Uh, And if you splash it on yourself, no one will judge you because everyone's done it. So let me pray. Father, we ask... that those of us in Christ would be called into deeper faith, deeper repentance, deeper need of you. We pray for those of us who are not sure if we believe this. We're not sure about what all this exactly means. I pray that you'd provide clarity. I pray for those of us that may not believe at all. Grant us eyes to see what is true and good and beautiful in this world. And on the other side of that, would we find you? Wherever we are today, would we be reminded of the great work of Christ for us as we keep this feast that you tell us, as often as you do this, remember me. We pray that you'd set aside these elements now from a common use to a spiritual use. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.